Hello and welcome to the Not The Top 20 podcast. It's the Monday pod. It's sponsored by Betfair and breaking down the EFL weekend that was. It's myself, Ali Maxwell, and him, El Arbitro, Hugh Davies. Hello. What horrible circumstances to be here, but what a joy and a pleasure and an honour it is to be invited. I love that you've said awful circumstances because I'm sitting here before recording wondering... How sombre do we need to be about the fact that George Ellick's not on the pod because he's suffering from tonsillitis? On a serious note, please do get well soon, George. But also, on a less serious note, I don't know about you, Hugh. I know you've got kids, so this might not be the case for you. But for me, tonsillitis feels like quite a 1990s sort of 2000s illness. I know I didn't know how to respond. I was like, oh, right, so does that mean you've, you've got them or you've not got them? Not quite sure what that's meant to mean these days. I know that you meant to, well, you do get illnesses as soon as your kids start going to nursery, as, um, as George's um, daughter has. Right. But it's usually kind of stuff that gets passed on. I don't think you can pass on tonsillitis. So it's, it's a really bad bit of luck, that. Yeah, I think it's quite 90s, 2000s for me, just because I haven't heard of anyone that I know having it since then. I think I might miss next week's with a broken metatarsal or something like that. (laughs) Lastly on this, I thought when he first said tonsillitis, I thought that was Stoke City's summer signing from Greece, tonsillides. This is, you know, in terms of pod history and pod stats, I think outside of George's one week of paternity leave that he was allowed last year by his um, hard-nosed boss uh, and also my week away on honeymoon around the same time, this is the first pod that one of us has missed since I went to La Tomatina Tomato Throwing Festival in August 2019. I don't know why I did that, uh, but George replaced me with Monday Night Football host David Jones and I've replaced him with El Arbitro Hugh Davies, so uh, one all, I think it's fair to say. Well, I remember him, um, David Jones, t- asking George a lot of questions, really putting him in the hot seat. So that's my plan here to, as I mentioned earlier, turn this into Frost Nixon, basically. <laughs> okay, that, yeah, that sounds fun. I mean, it, it's not a quiet weekend to talk about either. We've got new managers in the dugout, former Premier League titans Wayne Rooney and Mike Williamson in particular in the dugout for the first time, as well as Danny Rull the Sheffield Wednesday manager, some sackings off the back of the weekend and and from midweek to talk about, and a whole lot of football uh, as well. Hugh, El Arbitro, we haven't ever actually given you a definitive job title for your work on NTT20.com, Hugh, but as you're on, um, and as someone who knows the industry much better than I do with your over a decade's work with 442 Magazine, we're having a bit of fun with with NTT20.com, aren't we? We've got... Weekend notes on a Monday, which you and I uh, are both heavily involved with. Uh, obviously, the six fix, the Friday weekend preview, which George and I put together, and then the the floating piece, as we call it, the floater, the midweek fixture uh, on a Wednesday. It's, I hope you're enjoying it because I know I am. Yeah, I've actually enjoyed this because it's working with people who know exactly what they want to say about football and are really passionate about it as well. So. Getting to learn stuff and also talk about the things I know already and then talk about the things I learned has been great. I've really enjoyed it. As for job title, I think we went with semi-professional meddler in the end. <laughs> but um, it's been really good. And your piece last week actually was, as I said to you at the time, one of the best we've had so far. So it's not just me by any stretch. And George's opinion piece on managers was really well received as well. So it's going pretty well. 
Let's talk football. Start at the top of the champ. The River Don burst its banks on Friday, just as everyone was looking forward to watching Rotherham Ipswich on the box with the championship returning from international duty. Uh, But we were denied that. But when it came to Leicester playing Swans on Saturday, well, they pulled further clear. 33 points now. They're on Ipswich on 28. Leeds in third on 22. And possibly, Hugh, one of their most impressive performances of the season so far. They're starting to really look like the complete package now, especially in defence. They're just giving up so few chances. I mean, even the goal here from um, Matt Grimes was a really good hit. That's taken a deflection as well. You know, They've conceded seven goals in 12 games. That's an absolutely incredible record to be doing that. I mean, no one else is uh, going at less than a goal a game, I think, to concede. And they're basically one in two. So they're just exerting this control, as you've spoken about so well. And a lot of the new signings like Hermanson, for instance, are kind of looking just like they've been the, been in the team for so long now. Yeah, Hermanson made a, a brilliant save from a Cullen long shot. And Swansea are playing well, so that that's why I think this is perhaps Leicester's most impressive performance yet. I think it's almost suiting them to play away from home more than at home at the moment because naturally opposition teams are going to be a little more open. You know, there's an onus on a home team in front of their home fans to at least try and attack. Uh, And that's almost the worst thing you can do against this Leicester team because it, it suits them really. I think they have a lot more fun when there's an opposition committing bodies forward and improvements on, on both ends because the left side in particular with Mavadidi, wide left and Dewsbury Hall taking up those those really awkward positions on the inside left channel. That threat is getting better and better. I mean, Vardy started here, Kelechi came on and he has scored in four straight games of which he only started one. I, I'm assuming that Kelechi will be starting more games than Vardy long term. Um, I just see him as the better option and the more kind of sure thing in terms, probably both in terms of goal threat and in terms of the other side of the game as well, more more in terms of linking play. So uh, I know Vardy's obviously got a more storied career, but I'm probably pro Kelechi uh, between the two of them. And then, you know, the, the centre-backs, Fass and Vestergaard, both of them much maligned in the Premier League in relegation, which is, you know, always the case really, but uh, they've both settled and, and look very, very comfortable in, in a very different system. And uh, it's it's pretty impressive. I must say, um, we're going to run out of things to talk about really with Leicester fairly soon uh, if they keep this up, but it's great to watch. And uh, the Ipswich game having been postponed, Hugh, means that we can we can look downwards. And it was you that brought this up as you were writing the championship section of the weekend notes. Um, like clockwork, really, by the end of October in the championship, the seeded batch rises. It's out the oven and it smells great. It's happened again, Hugh. Just an unbelievable chunk of team separated by almost no points. It's like a seeded bakery. I mean, it's that one again where you go down point by point and think, well, can we rule this team out, rule this team out? Obviously, being a quarter of the way through the season, you're not going to start saying, are these promotion candidates, are these not? But as an example, Middlesbrough in the bottom half and they're two points off the playoffs. That's just a ridiculous batch of teams altogether. There's three points separating basically half the league, um, or four points separating half the league. And if Ipswich had played on Friday, and I think it's fair to assume they were likely winners at Rotherham, they'd be nine points clear a third, which is such an impressive start for them. And it leaves everyone else suddenly going, well, hang on a minute. Are we now playing for playoffs? Is that what we got now? Leeds will obviously push hard. There are lots of teams behind them, but... Ipswich have just given themselves this amazing head start, if you like. I mean, the main thing I wanted to say off the back of 
the kind of reintroduction of the the seeded batch is an annual reminder that I don't care that we're over a quarter away through the season already and I don't care that we're almost into November. I'm asking all fans, particularly those within the seeded batch, to disregard your club's league position at this stage. Don't base almost anything that you're thinking, any way that you're feeling on the exact number next to your team's name in the league table at this point because there's really very little that good that can come from that. I feel like seven years in, hopefully we've got across the point that, you know, football is a lot down to uh, luck in the short, you know, in terms of small samples and finishing uh, overperformance or underperformance. We're still in that zone at the moment. And that is summed up by how tight it is in the, in the league table. Like I genuinely don't think that Swansea City fans who are sitting in 17th on 15 points should be feeling any worse than Bristol City fans who are sitting 8th on 18 points. I I honestly think the difference between how those two teams are faring, performing, and and their their sort of expectations from this point on would have almost nothing between them at this point, even though there's, what, 10 league places. Yeah, I mean, we saw, like, again, we'll come on to those specific games, but individual goals, moving teams up five, six places. Like, I think um, Hull dropped five places on the back of one goal. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's it's just that tight. It's absurd. The best game of the weekend in the championship for drama, for narrative, for goals was Norwich to Leeds United at three. Hugh, fun, fraught, fucker. Uh, you told me not to swear. Thank- oh, sorry. <laughs> fuck. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it feels like very Leeds, even though they actually are in a lot more control of their games now. They've had such a kind of frenetic, another F, another frenetic start to the season. And then they, it means they're always in games, because even from the first game of this season against Cardiff, you kind of felt a 2-0 down, they'll probably get something out of this. And when Norwich were 2-0 up, it didn't really feel as if they were going to have the, um, the wherewithal to hold on, not even through any great fault of their own, but just because Leeds attacking threat it's just absurd. I mean, Somerville would have been considered at the start of the season, or at least at the end of the transfer window, probably their fourth most potent attacking threat, threat to be honest with you. And he's come up with an absolutely brilliant double. I mean, his first goal especially, this beautiful curler clipping, off, clipping in off the inside of the post. That kind of goal feels, when you're a defending side, defending the lead, like... Well, what are we meant to do here? Come on. We've scored an own goal, which is, you know, on us. Maybe we could have defended that better. But we can't stop every shot from 25 yards when we've seemingly closed down the angle pretty well anyway. They're just looking so hot going forward. Dan James, really impressive again as well, even if he did manage to kind of injure himself in a hoarding, I think. <laughs> it just is how fast he is. He can't control himself. Who who among us has not injured ourselves on a hoarding while uh, setting up an own goal? from Shane Duffy. Yeah, yeah, few few fun things to touch on here from a neutral's perspective. This was great to watch. From a Norwich perspective, I feel like it was a an initial kind of sugar rush, I guess, going two up. Uh, Shane Duffy heading home. Uh, then Duffy had one disallowed as well. He later scored an own goal <laughs> and um and the sort of the wildness of Duffy's first half in particular reminded me that uh, he once scored three own goals in 60 minutes of professional football a- across two games in August 2016. I think it was when he was uh, he was playing really well for Blackburn and he was being linked to moves. He ended up getting the move to Brighton uh, just a-, a week or so later. And it-, it was one of those where 
he wasn't trying to score own goals. This wasn't a William Gallas situation threatening to, to score own goals unless he got a move. But it, it didn't look great either way. Gabriel Sara is, is a joke, really. And, you know, you hate to think what sort of position Norwich City would be in if they didn't have Gabriel Sara starting every game in midfield because he's a real sort of do-it-all type, uh, tenacious out of possession and absolutely excellent with it and scored a great goal here. And, you know, six million quid plus add-ons is a big risk for a championship club in this economy. And, um, you know, that there there is significant risks attached to it, as, as Norwich are finding with um, my old mate Marcelino Nunez, who is really... Uh, it's kind of conspicuous by his absence at the moment. But if Sara keeps this up, you know, we know based on Gus Harmer and a few of the other sales this summer and, and generally a bit more money uh, back in the game post-COVID that, you know, they they can kind of be pretty confident of a, of a massive selling fee at some point, which I guess was the whole idea behind bringing him over in the first place. Uh, but this game was kind of about Crescencio Somerville uh, with your name like a fictional American town uh, in one of those terrible Netflix shows that my wife seems to watch a lot of. Uh, Somerville, who we talked about on the betting show because he, of all championship attacking players, was the one that was kind of most obviously underperforming his expected goals number, uh, suggesting that he was a, a, a real true and constant threat so far this season, but hadn't quite got the goal return to, to, um, to kind of back that up. He now very much has because two fantastic goals one of them just a beautiful technical finish curling from range in off the post and then the other running half the pitch on the break against a poor poor Norwich centre-back just backpedalling backpedalling didn't have a chance uh, and some of her winning it for, for Leeds so an incredible game Farker at the end you know it's, it's I think it's very easy to be magnanimous in front of your former fan base when you've just beaten them 3-2 and he absolutely was that so a fantastic day for Leeds and there they move up to third place and I I guess understanding that what I've just said is that uh, there's a lot of variability in football and the league table is still very tight I would guess that Leeds won't be uh, much lower than third from this point forward Hull 1 Southampton 2 is it a bit over the top to say Southampton have stopped defending like confused idiots here it, it sounds stronger than my normal rhetoric but it was frustrating for a few weeks wasn't it and, and now they, they really do seem at least somewhat past that stage I get that it's uh, quite strong rhetoric but anyone who saw those games was just in kind of disbelief to be honest with you it was, it was extraordinary some of the, the things they were doing yeah it's certainly better I mean it's, I don't think it's, it's quite fixed it would be an incredible effort to fix it that quickly and we saw um Hull had a couple of opportunities from goal scrambles in which Southampton were having to really throw bodies at it. And, um, you know, Delap scored one and the other was uh, a Hull player having his own shot blocked, actually kind of having his own shot, Cruyff turned away from the goal, which was uh, quite impressive. But um, yeah, so they're still giving up these occasional opportunities, but nowhere near as badly as before. And they're finding a way to win games at the other end. I mean, the winner in the 96th minute or whatever, that's two substitutes combining, you know, Fraser and Downs. Two players that, I mean, I'd forgotten they had them, to be honest with you briefly, because we've seen such quality from the likes of Will Smallbone playing that he, that when the subs come on, you're like, oh yeah, I forgot you've got them as well. And he did get them on deadline day. Oh, and he is still there. Like Suleimana down the left. Oh yeah, they have got Suleimana as well as a dozy. They've got a lot of attacking quality. It still feels at times like it's a lot of individual attacking quality rather than one working together in sync as a unit. But they are looking a lot better than they were, certainly. And Carl Walker-Peters is 
as I mentioned on the um, on the Substack, possibly the best fullback in the league at the moment. Just looking absolute Premier League quality almost every time he goes forward, and they're looking certainly like a surer bet for top six than they were. I still have a few concerns about when they get opened up, especially in transition. Mm. Yeah, it was some finish from Ryan Fraser on the bounce as well. Those are very difficult to connect cleanly with and to keep down as well. A good win for Saints. Don't think Hull lose too much in defeat there. What about Wayne Rooney's first game in charge of Birmingham? He was up against Michael Carrick in the Borough dugout. He played more games with Michael Carrick than any other player in his football career, which is a nice little quirk. And Borough beat them 1-0 late on. Hugh, uh, what do we make of this one? What was the what was the story of the game? Yeah, scoring late on, the winner late on, is one of those that um, makes it sound like a smash and grab, kind of almost by um, by instinct. But, I mean, Middlesbrough, the better team the whole way through this. Coburn missed quite a few chances. I mean, I, re- I really like Josh Coburn, but he seems to be getting flack from just a few areas of the Borough um, fan base for, I think, not finishing his chances so much and perhaps not... Um, kind of attacking with the speed that they want from some players, which is what we saw at the end from Morgan Rogers scoring the winner, being able to um, kind of get onto those breaks. But I think Coburn's leading the line pretty well. And then these opportunities came and went repeatedly, and they thought maybe Birmingham were going to hold on. But Birmingham's defending towards the end, I just found extraordinary. Like, essentially, Borough's winner, 89th minute, has come from a... a a Birmingham attack that's just been thumped clear, not desperately, but just a kind of get-it-anywhere clearance. Suddenly, Latte Lath is up against three defenders and he's got there first, which is already a bit of a kind of, should that be happening? He's held the ball up and then about, I think, uh, look, it's 10 seconds, maybe nine or 10 seconds later, you've got four Borough players attacking the box and one extra Birmingham player has turned up and it's Bielik who's kind of jogging back in a, you guys got this covered? <laughs> kind of like when I... I'm asking my wife if she actually wants help changing the nappy. Like, <laughs> you got this? You've got it, I think. You don't really need me here. And, um, like, Rogers has even been able to put the pass too wide to receive it back again to score. And I I didn't really understand, if anything, the, the lack of desire to get back and protect that point, because that's always the thing that a manager says he wants first from in his first game. You know, got to, got to work for everything. Don't give him anything. And so there were questions about Birmingham's off-the-ball shape uh, throughout. Ryan Deeney made a lot of um, very good uh, observations about that, about players seemingly not knowing their roles. Another good um, reason to be on the squad, actually, on Telegram, because just little things like that tactically help. But while that's the case, it was also a very strange lack of passion, P-A-S-H-U-N, to get back and protect that point, I thought. I don't know if Rooney was a bit surprised by that. Um, he's obviously got this remit to play with no fear, which perhaps also means no defending. I don't know if that's the case, but they were very open out of possession, I thought. Is that is that the way you saw it as well? They were way more open than we expect because we've seen them play under Eustace for a while. And his great strength, as I saw it, was setting the team up, team up out of possession to deny space, to deny quality players time on the ball uh, and to work very, very hard. So... It's just one game. Uh, it looked like there was a bit of slippage on that front. Uh, it was brave in possession. You know, they were sending their fullbacks incredibly high in possession, which leaves gaps. Um, they've got Long and Sanderson at the back. To what extent that they want to be defending a lot of space in transi- transition, we will see. Obviously, Bielik and Sunjic give a pretty good uh, screen, and Gary Gardner was in there as well. So it wasn't completely gung-ho, but uh, it's different. It's new, and 
I guess in conclusion, I'd say it was a good time for Borough to play Birmingham. I think they would have found it harder against Eustace's Birmingham than they did against Rooney's Birmingham. So uh, nice for, for Carrick, really, and it helps him get uh, five straight league wins, uh, six in all competitions, Barlasser and Hackney. Uh, in good form in the double pivot. Uh, Housen is back from injury, but Barlas's form means that he gets to keep his place. And it looks like those two are, are developing their partnership pretty well. And they seem to be getting a lot from their right side as well uh, in an attacking sense, in particular Isaiah Jones, but also Matt Crooks. You look at his touch map. He's really drifting to the right, helping Jones double up, providing a physical presence as well. Uh, he's playing very, very well. And uh, uh, it's obviously been an incredible month or so for Borough from a from a position of, of some... Uh, urgency, I think it's fair to say, after a poor start. Stoke played against Sunderland. Oh, quick mention for John Ruddy, who made 10 saves in that game, which you don't see a lot of 10-save performances, so credit to Big John. Uh, Sunderland went to Stoke. Uh, Alex Neal in the dugout. Still a strong narrative there after Neal left Sunderland for Stoke last season, replaced by Tony Mowbray, uh, a move that Sunderland fans would say worked out very well for them um, and does mean that they're quite keen to beat Alex Neal. Uh, of course, Stoke absolutely thrashed Sunderland to the back end of last season and they've beaten them here again. Now, it's a 2-1 win and there's a very basic way of looking at this. Uh, it was quite an open game. Both teams had quite a lot of attacking moments. Both teams scored. Uh, Stokes was questionable. Ryan Maie sticking his arm out to control it, sort of around the sleeve shoulder area. It, it wouldn't have been surpri- a surprise to see handball given. It wasn't. He scored. Uh, and Sunderland equalised very quickly through Jack Clark. And then from there, Stoke scored a set-piece header and Sunderland hit the post with a set-piece header. So it's pretty small margins here, uh, but Stoke getting the win. And, and Alex Neal, I think the most notable thing for me here, listening to him post-match, was we've questioned over the last few weeks when Stoke had been in poor form whether uh, the extent of their squad churn and turnover, the origin of a lot of their signings from foreign leagues, from overseas, therefore probably necessitating a bit of a period of adaptation. And and we kind of question whether it felt that Neil would be up for that uh, or whether he he's more of a win-now kind of manager because he's the sort of manager that can do a lot with a, a squad that's ready to, to play and compete. However, after this game, he seemed really positive, really energised, dare I say it, say it really bought in. Uh, and I was very pleased to hear that. he's He was very happy to be talking about them being a bit of a work in progress. He was using the word potential a lot. Uh, and it's just a small thing, but it was yeah, it was pleasing to me. He also he also said that Ender Stevens was their longest serving player in their starting eleven, and he signed on the fifth of July. So it's a whole whole new starting eleven, which is both true and also somewhat massaged because Hoover and Pearson were both there last season on loan before joining again in the summer. So a touch misleading, but you take his point. Uh, they've had a lot of injuries. Uh, they got the players back. This game could have easily gone either way, any which way, uh, but they got the win, and I think that'll help with some buy-in. What about Bristol City 1, Coventry 0, Hugh? Well, you mentioned post-match comments being interesting. Nigel Pearson's were a bit a bit fascinating. Can something be a bit fascinating? They were fascinating after this, because he's clearly not happy with seemingly not being... Um, backed in terms of a longer contract, or at least any assurances over whether there will be another contract. Um, the, the exact words he used were, um, my position's not been secure, which irritates me. Why don't you ask somebody above me for once what's going on? So he's obviously looking for some sort of assurances there. And, you know, that came after a win against a decent cough side who just seemed to do everything right except win lemon games of football. <laughs> it, I, I, I really want 
uh, as even as a neutral, I want Coventry to do well this season to show that um, they weren't just uh, rely on Hamer and um, Giot last year because they weren't. But it often could seem that way from the outside to uh, fans watching from the Premier League. Say, kind of dipping in, it might look like it was just those two players because they were so good during the running. But I think Coventry have been good this year. They're just not taking the chances that are there, and perhaps need a little bit of luck their way. I mean, they hit the woodwork twice early on here, I think, and. Um, in the end, they've uh, conceded from a set piece, and it just feels like a not sloppy, but kind of through their fingers. It slipped through their fingers, and three points there, and that's why a good example again. They're right down the league, you know, they're uh, down in sixteenth, but they're looking one of the better teams in that seeded batch, one of the bigger seeds in the batch, if you like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would getting stuck in our teeth. Um... <laughs> I'd love to hear from a few Coventry fans. Uh, Twitter, probably the best place for it. When a team is either underperforming or overperforming their underlying numbers, picking up more points than their performances suggest, or fewer points than their performances suggest, I'm always interested to hear what those who are watching the club more closely with a keener eye and through a different lens than me think are the reasons behind it. Because, you know, clearly there's a a large extent to which on the pod, partly because we're quite dispassionate and unsentimental about individual teams you know we generally we're happy to put things down to luck and variance and poor finishing or good finishing and that sort of thing um in most cases uh, i think we, we we kind of think that's the right way of looking at it but of course every individual case is also interesting so why Carl fans do you keep playing like this and not winning is there anything particular to it or is it just football uh it'd be good to hear from you uh you know, very valuable win for, for Bristol City. Pearson seemed, you know, chuffed to have got the win, I think, because it, it allowed him to feel comfortable taking some shots, as you've just said. Um, they were some very strong comments. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a strange one to to understand from the outside that that club doesn't look like it needs to be in, in a position where there's a bit of, uh, a bit of uh, yeah, simmering beneath the surface. But uh, I guess we'll keep a pretty close eye on that. So just speaking of taking shots, I just want to like um, point out to anyone who might not have seen it that um, Ephraim Yeboah scored a shot in, in the end from uh, 20 yards out of his own goal. I think it was in the last minute, Covert and Bob's keeper was up. And um, it's, it's amazing to look at the shot map because you just have all these blue little circles. Like, oh, there's a red one there, 20 yards out from the wrong end. <laughs> but, uh, that, that would have been a sensational effort if that, that had gone <laughs> Sorry, you were saying. George, George and I are massive... Fot mob shot map ultras on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon, um, and uh, and that certainly did stand out as a good one from the weekend. We're, we're building a a gallery of of the best fot mob shot maps, and we're going to put on an exhibition. Probably, I guess, at the Tate Modern. We haven't spoken. <laughs> yeah, we haven't spoken to them yet, but I, that's how that's where I see it being presented, uh, exhibited, I should say. Uh, same scoreline at Ewood Park, Blackburn beating Cardiff 1-0, uh, which means it's back-to-back wins either side of the international break. I think necessary wins just to, to ease things. I think fans having that kind of confusing thing a few weeks ago of, of definitely knowing that they were seeing some good things, uh, but also seeing a lot of goals going in their net and a lot of results not going their way, which is always quite difficult. Um, But they're very much in that batch, and I think we're still yet to find out exactly where it's going to shake out uh, overall, but particularly in terms of Blackburn. Um, 1-0 wins against Cardiff uh, help help them on their way. Um, 
I think in the notes you were you were a little confused about the Cardiff disallowed goal, a header from Gutas from a corner that went in. Everyone was off celebrating. Blackburn didn't look too upset about it, and then it was pulled back. Um, I think it's an absolutely incredible piece of linesmaning because you're right that it didn't it didn't look or feel like one that needed to be pulled back. But uh, I think it's Carlin Grant, isn't it? He's He's sort of marking the keeper, as you do from a set piece. And there's a defender, I forget who, broadly next to him. But at the moment of impact, to me, the pictures showed that Grant had basically had his hands on the back of the defender, which suggests to me that he was behind the defender to a certain extent and therefore um, was offside. And And he was undeniably standing right in front of or next to the keeper and therefore, I think, impeding him. So I'm saying incredible shout from the lino. Um just because I think it's always nice to give some credit to some linos. Uh, it was also a lovely goal from Blackburn. Um, Joe Rankin Costello is is one of the... Uh, he's at the forefront of the championship midfielders that ghost forward without anyone picking them up because, as far as I can tell, Blackburn had three big chances in this game. They were all Rankin Costello, just, just sort of trotting on um, and finding the gaps that are created by the attacking players. Really nice assist from Tyrese Dolan. Um, and it's a one nil win. And, and um, Hugh, you live in Cardiff. You are not a born and raised Cardiff City fan, but I would say you're Cardiff adjacent. Cardiff adjacent was the exact phrase I was going to use, knowing a lot of Cardiff fans and seeing a lot of Cardiff action. Um, yeah, I think you may be you may have a fair point about the uh, the linesman call. To be honest, he's certainly done his job perfectly in seeing that he is offside, and then it's just a question of whether he's impeding. And if he is, and it looks like he might be, fair enough. I mean, Cardiff were naturally upset about that, but didn't really create an enormous number of chances to win it themselves either. It's got a little bit set-piece heavy since um, since Aaron Ramsey's injury, even though Cardiff actually did win three games after that. Instead of kind of introducing another number 10 to replace him, which he would have had in either Ruben Colwell or Callum Robinson, Bullock kind of decided to change what... Um, he apparently did in Turkey. He used, to, he used to like playing with a number 10 a, a lot as well. He kind of thought, well, actually, let's have a bit more midfield beef, a bit more, a bit more winter, a bit more rowls. And um, because he brought in Siopis, who who's actually been one of Cardiff's best players this season, he's been excellent. Instead, he's kind of got two number eights pushing forward, and it's it just seems to have given Cardiff a bit less creativity. I mean, over the years, we would not have said that Ryan Wintle is a natural number ten. We just said he's a good kind of deeper player than that. So they've just lost a little of that cutting edge, really. I mean, every game in August and September, Cardiff scored and didn't draw a blank once. And then I think it's three in the last four or um, two in the last three, sorry, they've failed to score. And the game against Watford, which they drew, wasn't fantastic either. So Ramsey's going to be out for a while. It's um, been confirmed by Bullard that he's going to be out till certainly December. And if he has... Um, an operation as he may require we're then talking extra months on top so you know, I mean, realistically quite a lot of the season and I think something here needs to change because there's not enough goal threat in a front three of or, or perhaps not enough creativity for a goal threat in a front three of um, Ugbo, Grant and then here Josh Bowler was back you've got, you've got a shooter you've got a, a presser and you've got um Still not, I couldn't tell you exactly what Ogbo is good at. I don't I don't even mean that in a highly critical way. I think he's just um, a solid presence, if you like. But Atet's out for a bit. Atete? Ateti? Ateti, Ateti. Um, he's out for a bit. So that's going to cost him as well. O'Dowd is out also for another month or so. So injuries have been a factor, but um, 
there seems to be something not quite right about the shape in the minute after such a kind of exciting start to how things done unfurl. It's not it's not all negative. Perry and G's playing fantastically well, and um, the defense is looking pretty solid. The two um, Greek signings have been uh, better than I would have given credit before. I was like, "Wow, oh, signing two 29-year-old Greek lads who've never played outside Greece and Turkey. This this doesn't go well. When does that go well?" But Shopis and Gutas have both been very good. So, if they, if you can find a way to fix that creativity issue, they'll be uh, they'll be in the conversation as everyone is at the moment. Yeah, good Greek signings, and obviously still got tonsillitis to come back from injury as well. So. Should be a stronger when that's the case. Uh, Huddersfield beat QPR. This is a big game, really, down towards the bottom. That There are a very clear bottom three in the championship, uh, which isn't always the case this early in the season. Uh, that bottom three being Sheffield Wednesday, Rotherham and QPR. The performances of all three teams are, are poor as well. I guess the questions when you're just focusing on the championship relegation zone at the moment are, are twofold. Do QPR, Sheffield Wednesday and Rotherham have it in them? to improve to the extent where performances and, and points returns uh, allow them to you know, lift themselves out of it. And if so, if they give themselves the chance to, uh, if they earn the right, as they say, uh, which other teams are liable to be sucked in? And you know, before the weekend, you'd have looked at Huddersfield, uh, Darren Moore having, I think, had three draws and one defeat in his first four games. N- not poor results, not terrible performances, but not a particularly standout points return either. I think they'd had three or four games away from home. So, you know, quirks of the of the schedule against him as well. Uh, the first game back from international break, being at home to QPR, one of the, the few teams below you, was very, very important. And they got Moore's first win, uh, a big win. Uh, Rudoni was the star man, a bit like ranking Costello, just sort of breaking forward, ghosting forward from a midfield position. No QPR player interested in picking him up whatsoever, which led to him assisting and then scoring one himself. Uh, very much Huddersfield's star man. It's probably been the case for the whole of the calendar year, really. Rodoni, you know, he stepped up uh, from Wimbledon, didn't find it easy going. No one did at the start of last season where Huddersfield were, were really poor, playing under two and then three different managers. Um, but certainly in 2023, he's he's established himself, I would say, as a as a proper Championship starter in a box-to-box midfield role, and, and that's great to see. Uh, it was a, a more attacking lineup from Darren Moore. Uh, Josh Caroma been playing up front quite a lot with Bergsorg, which hasn't looked a partnership that's bearing a lot of fruit. Uh, he got dropped to left wing back, and Thomas was the right wing back. Sorba Thomas, uh, where previously they've had more defence-first wing backs, that was very much an attacking play for Moore, and I think that that could be encouraged because it'd be great to see Huddersfield become a more exciting attacking team. Um, and, and they got the win here. You know, Clark Salter pulled one back for QPR. Uh, and also, Hugh, we probably had your, what it seemed to me was maybe your favourite moment of the weekend at 2-1. Not a goal, but as good as a goal from Mikhail Helic. Well, if you can't have Helic, you've got to have Helic. That's, that's the rule, <laughs> yes. rule of the weekend. Um, <laughs> It's just one of the best blocks I've seen in recent, um, in what I was say months, years. I mean, I can't recall many good ones. He's he's just come out. Of, he has ghosted into his own box, if you like, to throw out a leg and stop Sinclair Armstrong scoring. It's not even really as if Armstrong's done a huge amount wrong. If you kind of play it back frame by frame, you can go, oh, he could have hit that earlier. He could have, you know. But essentially, he's two yards out with no one near him, so he's just making sure he doesn't get himself on the blooper reel, and. Hell, it comes out of nowhere. It makes an absolutely fantastic block, interception, tackle, whatever you want to call it, really. It's well worth looking out. Um, you'll be able to find it on, on X, 
as uh, as I believe it's called these days. I'm but... refusing to call it that. I will never call it that. <laughs> X the XX Twitter. This um, it's just yeah, it's a great block. Huddersfield, as you say, perfect fixture for more really to kind of having had a week or so of training players to face QPR at home. I mean, QPR are going to keep making these defensive lapses at the moment, which I don't really understand because. Ainsworth had his flaws at Wickham, obviously overperformed enormously with there, but you never really associated defensive fragility with them, or at least I didn't. And it's been strange to see so many players just not picking up attackers, losing those um, battles, kind of not getting to second balls. So it is a little worrying in that regard. Something I found interesting about Clark Salter was that he um, tried to go off with a minor injury, seemed to be kind of signalling to the bench, limping a bit. Um, wasn't brought off for whatever reason. I don't know whether they just thought he'd be okay or didn't have a, a replacement ready, but he did stay on and then scored and then nearly scored again and then nearly created a goal as well. So uh, I don't know if he was kind of hoping that he could impress enough to be given an early early sub or something, but that was interesting. Watford beat Sheffield Wednesday uh, in Danny Hurl's first game in charge of Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, I don't think we went particularly in depth on the appointment, albeit George did talk about it. Uh, and his thoughts on it were, were made fairly clear before the appointment was made. Um, I think some things to cling on to for Wednesday fans here, a better performance, more energetic performance, a bit more work rate and desire, and a few bits and bobs of quality as well, but still ultimately a 1-0 defeat. Um, you need something to cling on to in those first games in charge, and, and I think the away end got that. Um, tactically, it looked quite Red Bully. Uh, for 2 2 2 type thing. Uh, Masaba looked like he had a good game off the right, a good outlet, and a very lively attacking player. Um, Buckley played on the left side of, of the two behind the front uh, two and uh, is a very different type of player, more of a midfield, central midfield type, really. Uh, Windass and Patterson up front. Bannon and Hendrick in midfield. Famwo left back. Valentin right back. Diaby and Iorfa centre back. It's Nothing to do with Danny Röhl, but it, it does make me wince um, the, the sort of tools that he has at his disposal and the job that he needs to do to get them away from being anchored to the bottom of the table. It took a, a really good individual goal from Yasser Aspria uh, to win it for Watford. Now, Aspria was part of my big data dig piece last week. I reckon he, both in terms of the numbers... Uh, suggests this, but also uh, my eyes suggest it, that he is the closest profile to lovely Wes Houlihan that currently exists in the championship. Or so I thought, but the whole point of Wes Houlihan and being the next Houlihan is that you're not meant to score. You're meant to pass instead of shoot as much as possible. So uh, maybe Aspria is is kind of fighting against that, wants to be his own man. The biggest pleasure of being invited onto this podcast today is hearing firsthand you hold uh, those R's of Danny Roll and uh, he pronounced Yasser Espria more elegantly and exotically than I could. Um, the interesting thing I found about uh, this relegation fight, by the way, just wanted to mention Rotherham's, although Rotherham didn't play, is I know you like your noughts and ones, your zeros and ones. So can you imagine any team staying up effectively when they are failing to keep noughts and ones in almost every game. Rotherham have conceded more than one in eight of their 11 games this season, which basically about three quarters, which is just madness, really, when you think about it. Like every single game having to score twice to get anything from it. Yeah, if you're a team that's going to be battling, if you think you're likely to be in the bottom six, let's say, or the bottom eight, and staying up from relegation is your objective, just stylistically, it would be better to be bad 
going forward and okay defensively than okay going forward and bad defensively. Just because it it just gives you a mountain to climb in each game if you cannot keep the opposition at bay. Um, Preston won, Millwall won. The, the lunchtime kickoff on Saturday. I must say that this felt like such classic early kickoff in the in the autumn televised championship fair. I say classic fair because one team started well and looked dominant and scored and went 1-0 up. And you're thinking, wow, Preston looked pretty good here. Uh, Frukje Jensen it was who scored the first goal. And I'm left wondering whether whether we think he shouts Frukje whenever he scores. Because I that's what I do when he scores. But um, we don't know that yet. But then somehow like there's this kind of gravity gravitational pull in the championship where the team that looks better and goes ahead I mean it's not gravitational isn't it it's it's a psychological thing I think about sport and football and momentum the other team comes back into it uh Millwall it, it was who scored a, a beautiful equalizer through Fleming and then in the second half you know a few forays forward each but generally the game was sort of it just seemed like a fairly solid 1-1 draw sort of no further notes your honor i would say um it was played sort of amid a backdrop of uh, of managerial news of course with gary rowett having left millwall midway through last week uh, rowett was the second longest serving manager in the championship at the time of his departure behind mark robbins and left by mutual consent and i i think this is a case when mutual consent is actually mutual consent. Gary Rowett on, I think it was Talk Sport last week, and be very clear and, and make it very clear that you know this was as much his decision as it was the club's decision for him to, to leave. So that's interesting, kind of unusual. I think it's an interesting case, really, because Rowett did a very good job for Millwall for quite a long period of time um, and was supported by the club in order to do so. But... Having missed out on the playoffs last season in, in pretty devastating fashion, uh, particularly on final day, and starting the season just a little slowly. You know, it, it's not dramatic and it's not horrendous, but they are seemingly, and as per the numbers, a touch worse going forward, a touch worse defensively. And that's led to a, a bit of a drop off. Um, and the fans seem to make up their minds. You know, I was at the Rotherham game that they won 3 0, and with five minutes to go, there was a section of the fan base singing loudly about how bad Rowett's football was and, and a month or so later Rowett and Millwall have, have parted company so uh, only for the second time in eight years Millwall are looking for a, a new manager and it'll be very interesting to see uh, which way they turn West Brom and Argyle that was a match that happened a nil-nil uh, the most notable thing is that Argyle's talented keeper Cooper is back and uh, the sheets are as clean as ever Hugh yeah, I feel a bit bad for Connor Hazard here because it felt as if everything was right with the world again. And it's not as if Hazard had done anything wrong. I think um, actually he's in the top five keepers this year for this season for goals prevented. So he's done a fantastic job, or certainly as good a job as could have been expected. But Cooper's just kind of come back in and it, it just all feels a lot more settled, a lot more kind of a little bit less drama about it. Um, so it's great to see him back. And actually Palmer made some good saves at the other end as well. So it was a nil-nil that uh, didn't have to be, if you like. But um, it wasn't a bad game, actually. No, it wasn't. Let's move on to League One, where I think you find this as well, Hugh, because we're both tasked with the weekend notes on the newsletter. And you want, in a season where there are going to be 
40 odd Mondays, 40 odd batches a weekend notes approximately. You want some specific individual bits and bobs to, to kind of make each weekend unique and feel unique and uh, little quirks that, that feel interesting. The, the one that I looked at in League One this weekend was that only two teams that were in the top half going into the weekend, only two of those 12 won. And I wasn't sure if that was really boring or not. Do you think that's interesting or, or is that not particularly interesting? I think it's interesting. It's it's a similar seeded batch, although I don't know if that's trademarked to the championship now. Is this the kind of own brand seeded batch? <laughs> You've got, what is it, five teams on 18 points altogether. And again, just a handful of points separating third from 13th, effectively. So I don't know if exciting is the right word, because as we've discussed, it's been uh, the least goalie of the three leagues by quite a distance, but it's certainly been one of the hardest to predict. So that kind of ties into what you're saying about the only two of the top half winning, kind of it's on on brand. It's narrative. Own brand seeded batch. You know when like Aldi just use like slightly different terminology to bring yeah. out a product that's the same as a, a well-known product. I'm trying to work out what what seeded batch equivalent to that would be. Something like... Not loaf. A grained loaf or something like that. <laughs> yeah. That's what League One's offering up this season. So who were the two winners in the top half? Portsmouth, obviously. Uh, six wins in a row. Three home games in a row has helped with that, and they beat Carlisle this time out. And just like it was on the 3rd of October at home to Wickham, uh, a in-swinging corner from Jack Sparks was headed in by Connor Shaughnessy. Uh, he's been amazing this season, along with his centre-back partner, Regan Poole. Uh, I think Poole scored three goals before Shaughnessy scored his two, albeit one of Poole's goals was when Shaughnessy had won first contact and headed the ball onto Poole and in. So I'm going to say they're on two and a half goals each. I think that seems fair. Uh, and, and Portsmouth, you know, it was a little bit different to the Vale game that I saw live a couple of weeks ago in that against Vale, they, they started poorly and were second best and Vale's initial game plan was, was very good. Here, Portsmouth came flying out the traps and, and it was Carlisle that were kind of clinging on. Thomas Holy making a lot of good saves. Um, Bishop looking dangerous as ever. I'm sort of very confident now, and I'm, I'm sure I'm on this a little later than most Pompey fans, but I'm, I'm very confident now in saying that Colby Bishop is League One's best all-round striker, and he just looks he just looks incredible at the moment. He's, he's hitting such a good performance level. Um, but Carlisle came out pretty strongly in the second half. They hit the post. They had a real sort of flurry. I think of the first 15 shots... In the second half, Carlisle took 12 of them. So they, they really were having the majority of chances uh, until the last period where, where Portsmouth kind of had that late pressure. And it and it paid off once again. It's pretty amazing uh, the extent to which Pompey are, are digging out these wins. Uh, and I want to bring up Jack Sparks because I think his left foot has been the key for Portsmouth in the last five games. He's got three assists in five games, but I reckon even in the two games where he hasn't got technically an assist per opta, He's more or less been the difference maker. So um, he got an assist for Regan Poole's winner against Lincoln with a cross. Against Wigan, it was a corner delivered onto the head of Shaughnessy. He headed it onto Poole. Uh, so it wasn't Sparks' assist, but it broadly was. Uh, against Wickham, assist for, for Shaughnessy's winner from a corner. Uh, against Vale, it was his brilliant cross that he dug out basically from nowhere when Pompey was struggling at 0-0, uh, he dug out a cross, which teased a mistake into Ripley, who tried to catch it and couldn't, fumbled it. Uh, and that led to the goal after Rafferty's shot was turned in by Bishop. Uh, and then against Carlisle, he gets the assist for Shaughnessy's winner. And it's really important because 
well, it's important and interesting. It's important for Portsmouth because I maintain they are not exerting a total level of dominance and they are not racking up a ton of shots and a ton of goal-scoring opportunities. They're, they're not scoring loads and loads of goals and they're winning games by a single goal. So these moments of quality, in particular from wide areas, if the game is a little congested, do make a massive difference. The reason it's interesting is that Jack Sparks came uh, having left Exeter in the summer and Sparks is one of those players who is has very obvious strengths and fairly key weaknesses. Um, he's he's not very good defensively. He's not considered very good defensively. And at Exeter, I saw many times last season how teams targeted him defensively. And I believe that teams are doing the same. But one of the key things about football management is being able to build a team uh, in such a way that your players' strengths are kind of heightened and their weaknesses are somewhat uh, kind of hidden. And I think Mousinho is managing this with Sparks um, defensively, where it's it's not affecting them uh, that he's not the best defensively, albeit he's working hard on that. But they're getting all the good stuff from him um, because his delivery is so good. And it's interesting to me because the other option is Connor Ogilvy when he's fit. And very clearly to me, he is basically the inverse of this. He is uh, physical. He is a strong defender. He's very hardworking defensively. He is not someone that is going to consistently set up goals and create chances with left-footed crosses so uh, it's an interesting conundrum for Moussinho when they're both fit at the moment Sparks is absolutely justifying uh, Moussinho's faith in him and in Portsmouth's faith in signing him with uh, essentially being a key factor in them winning uh, their last five games Uh, the other team in the top half the one were Bolton, Hugh. 2-1 against Cobblers. Yeah, it's a bit of work by um, Aaron Morley, I thought, to create Randall Williams' goal. Kind of some neat feet neat feet in the middle. And yeah, it was another good performance. They, they, I know you've got some concerns about them, which you'll come on to in a second. But it one that I found that um, I don't know how common this has been, but Ricardo Santos seemed pretty determined to kind of set up a Northampton goal, certainly in the second half. Kind of gave them two fantastic chances passing out from the back. The second even seemed to be a case of uh, welcoming his own players, saying, come closer, come closer. You know, I want to find this pass, I want to find this pass. Fine, if you're not coming, I'll just give it to them. <laughs> Everyone seemed to give up after a way. I don't know whether that's really been an issue with Santos. I know he's been excellent for them the last few seasons, so I doubt it has. But um, yeah, his passing out from the back was a little worrying in that game. Otherwise, you know, generally Bolton looking pretty good. Though. Yeah, I mean that was that's the key factor in what was a poor second half display. I, I, it was sloppy. They did let Northampton back in the game. They gave Hoskins in particular three good chances, and he's the sort of player that on another day could easily have taken all three of them. Uh, and Bolton would have lost back to back home games, uh, having lost to, to Carlisle before the international break. So just something to watch, really. On the one hand starting games pretty well I think they're a very good team uh, but they're not quite as good maybe as I would like them to be having picked them to win the league in the 1-24s uh, we'll, we'll see how they develop over the next few weeks first win of the season for Cheltenham Town uh, now Hugh is one of the leading experts uh, leading statisticians in Cheltenham's goal drought so we disappointed that they eventually scored the other week against Derby and again here through Liam Serkham or were you pleased to stop having to go further and further into the depths of the English football pyramid to find a team that hadn't scored. I was definitely running out of leagues who actually update their tables every week, trying to find someone who, um, another team who hadn't done it. No, it was, it was good to see because it was that whole, um, you know, the chances of a team not scoring in the first 10 games or whatever it was, 
it's always going to be the case that they've had chances they haven't gone in. No one is that bad as to not create anything at all. That being said, are we absolutely 100% sure that Circum has deliberately chipped the keeper here and not just looked for a far post cross? Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm prepared to be wrong. I'm more than happy to bring up questions like this. In this exact instance, I think I would refute it strongly. Uh, I think it's a lovely sort of low trajectory wedge over the keeper and into the top corner. But I'm, now that you've brought it up, I'm definitely going to look back and see if I can find reason to disbelieve. A wedge is the right word, actually. I mean, I may be doing him a massive disservice. If it's a goal, it's if it's a deliberate goal, it's a fantastic finish because um, it's not as if the keeper was that far off his line either. Um, so, yeah, wonderful way to do it. Really early in the game as well. I'm, I'm really up for a Daryl Clark Cheltenham reclamation job because... A, it would just be a great story and a great sort of season narrative if they could really come charging back. And B, there's so many points still to play for that, you know, despite the desperate nature of their start, there's absolutely nothing to suggest they couldn't be out the relegation zone even by Christmas Day if they put together a decent run of results. And, you know, this was a real battle. Cambridge playing fairly poorly at the moment. Um, and it was a, it was a kind of quite a direct game and, but Cheltenham were the ones who were making it work. They seemed to be getting on getting on the ball in the final third and then turning that into half-decent opportunities. Obviously, Circum's goal came from range, but they were they were certainly making the running in that first half. And uh, it looks like Curtis Thompson, uh, per the stats, had a real battling performance in midfield as well. Him and Circum, I could see being a pretty solid duo for, for Daryl Clark for, for the qualities that he looks for. Just quickly, um, to go back to the, the Frost-Nixon angle, uh, we Without wanting to uh, put you on the, in the spotlight too much, did we, by which I mean you, go too early on Cambridge perhaps being a lot better this season? Down in 18th now without a win in seven. They've been playing kind of Wigan, Shrewsbury, Cheltenham, Burton, Port Vale. Not great teams. Or is it just not clicking for them and actually there's not too much to worry about? Uh, my lawyer says I don't have to comment on that. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, yes, I think is probably the answer. Um, I, You know... I still maintain that they were keeping a very good shape and they were scoring some great goals on the counter-attack. It may be that there was a bit of kind of outcome bias and that that wasn't necessarily the sort of performances that were likely to, to be sustained. But yeah, I mean, now we can say definitively, yes, we went too early because they're really struggling at the moment and, and haven't won in seven. So uh, no, I think that's a fair thing to bring up. Um, Exeter nil, Wigan 2 was, was a big one. Uh, both teams went into it having lost four in a row. It was a little bit, it was kind of smashy and grabby in the sense that Wigan didn't have that much territory or too many shots. But equally, Exeter, who had territory and shots, didn't have any particularly good ones. Uh, they didn't hit the target until injury time. And then I think they had four shots on target in injury time and also conceded the second goal for Wigan. I just think I'm more concerned about Exeter than Wigan at the moment. Uh, Wigan obviously in the relegation zone on account of that points deduction. But I, I think they've got a little bit more about them overall. Um, it's not necessarily the game to go big on Wigan because, you know, on balance of play, they obviously weren't clearly the better side, but they were probably the slightly smarter side and, and they executed. They took their chances. I think they've got more going forward than Exeter to do. They've also had an interesting quirk of the fixture list where Wigan have played 12 games, eight away from home and four at home, which is quite peculiar. But also, as I mentioned quite often, it makes a massive difference when you play 
such an imbalance uh, at home or away and it should change the way that people look at you because teams pick up more points at home than they do away from home um, that's almost an undeniable fact there's normally three teams maybe of the 72 that don't over the course of a season so uh, we're gonna have three home games to come and I, I think we should expect a decent points return compared to the last month or so a uh, burton four bristol rovers one what do we reckon hugh it was a uh, a game that hinged on a big moment a red card for ryan it woods did, it did look quite elbowy to me after after see to use the um the exact parlance i mean he's he looked completely baffled afterwards that seems to be the uh, the rule now where any player sent off has to be so stunned that it could ever have crossed the referee's mind but i mean it certainly looked an elbow to the head to me i mean burton attacked well even at nil nil i thought actually or one nil so quite what's happening at bristol rovers we couldn't say for for certain, I kind of went out my way to not go out my way to look up Joey Barton's comments after this one. After he's been talking, he's been making a lot of interesting comments. So I kind of just left this one to be. But um, yeah, I, I'm glad that Burton have picked up again under memory. I thought Powell scored an absolute screamer as well. Kind of almost dictionary definition of screamer. If you yeah, like. Powell is he's a real... <clears throat> He's an old-school, long-range merchant, that's for sure. He's sort of Alessandro Diamante levels of left-footed shots from range, and there are long periods of the season where he won't score, but he'll still be taking like two or three a game. But he's in really good nick at the moment, and uh, and they are great to watch. I mean, but from a Burton point of view, they had two points from seven games with no wins, two draws, five defeats. They've reversed that in their last seven with five wins, two draws, and no defeats. And... While there's game state factors, opposition factors, home and away factors, etc. It is funny to me that looking at the first batch of seven games, they scored two goals from around seven expected. And they conceded 11 goals from around nine expected. And in the second batch of games, in which they've picked up 17 points rather than two, they've scored 13 from around six XG. So broadly the same amount of chances generated as they had in the first batch and they've conceded six from around 7.5 xg so slight improvements defensively per the numbers no difference going forward per the numbers other than some great goals being scored some execution from powell and Barr and labala and co um, but certainly happier times and they've absolutely flown up the table into the top 10 now charlton beat reading 4-0 seven Defeats away from home for Reading this season. Uh, they've now lost, I think it's 24 of their last 30 uh, away from home in the league. That's 80% of their away league game since the start of last season. Uh, and they genuinely played well. Like, they actually did play well here. I think it's important to say. At nil-nil, even into the second half, they were having as many, if not more, chances as Charlton to take the lead. But they didn't take them. Then Charlton went ahead through an EK, a little uh, Blackett-Taylor cross. He got three assists here, Blackett-Taylor. The end product that Charlton fans often bemoan him for not having, um, very much on show. Uh, and then Reading missed one more chance for luck at 1-0. And then Charlton just absolutely destroyed them after that. 4-0, um, players coming off the bench, having a big impact, like Tyrese Campbell, who scored a brilliant goal and got a brilliant assist for young Miles Lieburn. Alfie May scored a customary goal, which I think makes it eight in eight for him. Um, they're, they're going well under Appleton. It, I think it's three wins and three draws. I'll be honest, I think there's an extent to which the the sort of headline stats are 
um, a bit of overperformance and I, I wouldn't necessarily expect it to continue. They've had uh, some nice home fixtures. They've also definitely not put together a performance over 90 minutes yet. Even here is a good example of one where they wouldn't have been able to complain had they been behind against Reading and against a team in better shape and with more confidence, I dare say, they would have been. So um, I know George is excited about Michael Appleton's start. I am too, and it's great to see some real brilliant attacking play because they've got some great attackers. But still, yeah, I'm keeping my eye on Charlton. I'm not fully bought in just yet. Shrewsbury beat Derby 1-0. Uh, which was a, just a good Shrewsbury performance. And, and despite the fact the goal came from a slightly freakish own goal from lovely Connor Howrahan, uh, I think they deserved it. And I think they were they were the better side, basically, by by most measures, uh, which is great for Shrews. Some of their points in recent weeks have felt a little fortunate. This, this wasn't the case here. Uh, it's obviously not great news for Derby, whose fans were not happy at the end. Uh, Harahan going over to try and placate them. I sent you a screenshot with the messages just along the lines of kind of bloody hellfire when I noticed that seven of their eight most used outfield players this year are in their 30s. It, it, you kind of know of the main ones. You just go, there's a, actually, there's another as well and another. And I kind of worry slightly that they've gone the wrong way with this. With Because uh, I don't think Paul Warren does rely on old players necessarily. He likes players who... Um, have experience, but he's also kind of integrated young players at Rotherham as well. And at Derby, they seem to have gone too far in one direction, if you like. He was pretty bullish after the game. He said, there's not, I don't think there's much wrong. We didn't do much wrong. We're just not taking chances. He did also call Shrewsbury a really good League One side, which was perhaps a slight exaggeration. But um, yeah, it's, it's not quite working out for reasons that I feel have to be more than their older players. I mean, you may have more insight into that than me, but it's it's certainly not looking great. Well, I'm going to the game on Tuesday night, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take a watching brief, I think, before weighing in. Um, but I'm I'm certainly interested in in what I see there at home to Exeter, five defeats in a row. So I think it's fair to say expectation levels will be very very high, and um, I think it would be within Paul Warren's interest to meet those expectations level on Tuesday night. Um, Fleetwood. Lost 1-0 at home to Lincoln. This was Lincoln City's first game since they sacked Mark Kennedy. Now, that was a dismissal that uh, I think took a lot of people by surprise, including Lincoln City fans, certainly the outside world. Um, It's their first sacking under Clive Nates as the owner. We definitely think of Clive Nates as one of the more measured and sensible um, and kind of... Uh, understanding owners around. Um, So this is uh, interesting. Now, I don't think it's ever correct to just look at the league table and decide for yourself what's harsh or not or what's right or wrong when it comes to this. And It would definitely be the wrong thing to do here because it would be to ignore what we've been told fairly explicitly by the club, by their CEO, Liam Scully, is not the reason for parting company with Mark Kennedy. It's not purely or even strongly down to results. Um, he wasn't that explicit in the interview that he did um, with the BBC, Liam Scully. Uh, but broadly, I sort of read between the lines that I think they look at things in quite an analytical way, as a few clubs do, um, but probably more so than most. I think they've probably got some fairly clear KPIs, for want of a less high-performance podcast word. And uh, they might be more to do with uh, playing style. They could be performance-based. They could be player development-based. I I took from his interview that they didn't feel Kennedy was uh, making the progress that they were expecting, that maybe they had requested. Um, They definitely didn't love 
his treatment of Danny Mandroyu, which we spoke about uh, on the podcast last Monday. Um, and, and broadly, they've decided that they didn't think Kennedy was going to take them where they want to go. So it, it's interesting. It puts the pressure on them, obviously, when you make a, a change like this. I, I would point people in the direction of that interview with Liam Scully because I, I kind of I find it interesting hearing a CEO talk in the way that he did. Um, it's, you know, uh, he's not trying to pin any blame on anyone. He's trying his best to answer questions which he probably doesn't want to be that explicit about answering because people within clubs don't want to give too much away. So, yeah, it's interesting. He, he said we are process driven in terms of looking at the overall objective of the football club. So maybe we'll learn a bit about um, that process when they hire someone. You can normally kind of read between the lines a little bit in the, in the statements when new managers are appointed. But it's a very, very young team. They're in pretty good shape. Uh, Freddie Draper presumably will be recalled in January to play up front. Uh, I think it's a great job for someone. So I'm excited to see who, who Lincoln go with. Uh, we had four draws in League One. Really entertaining game at London Road. Peterborough 2, Wickham 2. All the entertaining stuff happening in, in the first hour, really. Brandon Hanlon putting Wickham ahead. Uh, Joel Randall equalising with an Olympic goal direct from a corner, which, uh, as I wrote in Weekend Notes, was highly notable for being done on the same pitch as Joe Jacobson, who is the greatest ever EFL player for scoring goals direct from corners. Uh, so I'd love to know you know, what it was like for him being on the other, uh, the other end of it. Yeah, I think uh, you described it as a big flex which uh, <laughs> was an excellent uh, description of it. I liked as well, I thought um, there was some great feet from Joe Lowe in setting up Brandon Handlin and also a great commitment to rhyming in those, in those two. I, I think I tried to work out rhyming names. Uh, Fajiri Okanabiri, I think, is possibly my favourite, unless I'm mispronouncing that, but there's some good rhyming names in the EFL at the moment. Um, yeah, it's a great game. Wickham wearing red is still weird to me. Blue teams wearing red is always strange. Um, I thought Mason Clark's goal was really good, kind of definition of arrowed if you like. But um, yeah, it's an entertaining game between two increasingly entertaining teams in Wickham's case. I mean, Peter have always had that commitment, I think, but Wickham are just starting to look quite interesting to watch, really. Yeah, Oxford and Blackpool drew 1-1. Two of League One's premier goal scorers notching here. Greg Lee for Oxford, uh, who has five in seven, having scored something like seven in his whole career combined, the 29-year-old. And Jordan Rhodes, who is... Uh, objectively, one of the great goalsmen in, uh, in in the EFL. I think he's got eight and eight, is it, Jordan Rhodes? And it's great to see. And he had six bites of the cherry before he actually scored here. Oxford, having had some illness in the week, uh, really fell hard off a cliff, having um, having started the game pretty well and I think having the better of it. So a one-all draw, uh, not amazing, but no disaster for either side. Orient and Barnsley, same scoreline, uh, a pig at penalty. It was quite a harsh handball decision, I thought, for Orient's penalty, but they went ahead and, and Barnes equalised through a, a sumptuous Herbie Kane finish from range. And Stevenage nil, Port Vale nil was a, a match, certainly, that happened in Hertfordshire. In League Two, League Two, uh, we went pretty deep on it last week, so this will be more express. Some things never change, Hugh. Stockport County winning football matches. 3-2 against Grimsby, not as easy as you might have thought. No, I um I found it interesting when Oliafu took the um took the ball for to take a penalty, having Barry's taken one and scored one. Oliafu's won one, fine, I'll have this, and then he's missed. And I was at that point, I was a little worried that maybe they were just going to lose momentum, and they did because you know Grimsby came back into it, roared back into it with another penalty. What I really liked is that um they got one back 
at the exact moment the announcer finished saying there'll be a minimum of five minutes added, so they got immediately inspired to go into half time with a goal back. But um, yeah, Barry kind of injured a, injured in a winner, from what I could tell. I couldn't quite work out what part of the body it came off at. But uh, they've, they've got the job done, as anyone who made them their nap at one to two pathetically <laughs> could, could tell you. Uh, lovely Louis Barry, of course, great friend of the pod after his interview on the feed last week. Um, it's 18 goals between him and Tanto Alafe in the last 12 games. Uh, 1.5 goals per game being provided by your two key attackers. Is that good? I think it's helpful, at the very least. Uh, Grimsby... I notice a little tweak here. Paul Hurst going three-five-two. Donovan Wilson starting up front with Danny Rose, who's been their their kind of lone striker for the main part this season. They've been going with Rose and then two wide forwards in Issa and, and Nahua. I kind of see the logic of, of going two up top. Uh, Wilson scored here. He's not going to do a huge amount in in build up, but they play quite direct. They put quite a lot of crosses in anyway. And I just think getting someone close to Rose and bringing the best out of his target man qualities. Uh, yeah, as I say, I, I kind of see the logic there and. Uh, be interesting to see how they go in the next few games uh, after a run of poor form. Um, Knotts beat Jills 2-1. Langstaff scored, obviously. Uh, Scott Malone scored, non-obviously. And quite a hilarious goal as well. I think he basically completed one and a half roulettes in <laughs> in quite a congested area before firing it into the corner. Um, I note that this is the only team in the top half that Knotts have played away from home. So it's the sort of thing I like to flag. It looks like they've had quite a kind fixture list so far and, and obviously have beaten what's in front of them uh, in the main. Uh, very impressive to get the win. And I think we all had the exact same reaction when we saw the Vidi printer come up with the name Makari having scored for Notts, you? Well, so we've now got Lewis Makari, grandson of Lou. We've got Michael Mellon, son of Mickey. Are there any others kind of spurning the family name? been trying to named after their father or grandfather and saying no i'm absolutely not having it i want to know <laughs> if there's any others out there if anyone can tell us or tell you lewis mccurry a right-sided center back he came on early in the game when brindley was uh injured i can't tell you much more about him i actually for my sins at football cliches can't tell you that much about lou mccurry he's just slightly before my time he's he's one of those names that you know because it's quite a it's quite a sort of conspicuous name, but I couldn't tell you almost anything about Lou Macari. I'm a little bit offended that you think he's more my era. Uh, he, retired, <laughs> he, ret- he retired from playing the year I was born. <laughs> Best known as a manager in the early 90s, but like almost, also finished managing pretty much the time that I was still in primary school as well. So I'm afraid he's slightly out of my wheelhouse as well, but... He was certainly a Scottish former footballer and manager. He began his playing career at Celtic, where he was one of the Quality Street Gang, and so on, so on. The Quality Street Gang—that sounds like the sort of the sort of nickname that I would like to coin, but haven't got the imagination to. Well, do so. I think they produced some magic moments. Yeah, lovely, lovely. Uh, so did Crew at Crawley, uh, winning four-two. Uh, sort of putting on their second half FC hat once again, 2-1 down at the break, 4-2 winners, um, playing some pretty exciting attacking football, Hugh, definitely getting the goals uh, in in reward, uh, Smokey Tim Robbo, who is the crew fan on Entity 20 squad, been providing quite a lot of goals-based stats, uh, because they're, you know, they're just loving life under Lee Bell, he's brought the good vibes back, and it's great to see, and um, 
Smokey Tim said we scored 48 goals in League Two last season. This season we've already scored 34 by the 21st of October. You, I don't need to do the maths because I know that's 71% of their goals from last season already scored by the 21st of October. Uh, they've scored two or more in 13 of their 14 games, which is unbelievable. Um, and they went six months without scoring two or more between September and February. So, you know, goals being scored, academy graduates taking important roles. It's, it's not hard to love this, is it? No, I mean, it, it takes something to be the league's top scorers by a distance when that league has Wrexham and Mansfield and Notts County <laughs> and this Swindon team in it. They're, they're kind of, I don't want to say we're sleeping on them because I don't think you are. I think you've been then covering how well they're playing, but they are suddenly looking almost like real candidates at the top, real contenders at the top, which I personally would not have seen coming this season. I think some of the crew fans that we hear from think that maybe we are sleeping on them a little bit. We had a very good question tweeted in from Adam, who's a crew fan, saying a potential question for the pod. Crew are exceeding everyone's expectations from pre-season. As a club, performances are also improving week on week. What should Crew's revised aims for now be for the season? Champions, top three, top seven, top half? Not half. I, um, I think it's a good question. I think it's a good time for the question because they've hit third over the weekend they're in the automatic promotion places and so there's a few different things to pick out here not not least my my sort of request from earlier in the pod about people not getting overexcited or too angry about league position at this stage of the season um and i think the question is interesting because there's a few different ways of looking at this i think that as fans your aim should be for this to continue for crew to finish in the top seven like that there's no issue or problem aiming high there's certainly no issue absolutely loving what you're seeing and wanting to talk about it and wanting to show off about it i think that's 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 how it should be i guess from my dispassionate point of view uh within the club i think there would also be merit in understanding the probabilities of the situation so as not to get too carried away and not to um, overreact if there's a drop-off, right? So you, you you can't let the league position affect your expectations too much at this stage of the season, even if it's exciting. Third in League Two is not that different to seventh, is not that different to twelfth right now. It, re- it really isn't. It's a, it's a, it's a three-game run of good or bad form between those two positions. If you look at the bookmakers' odds, not everyone likes to believe in, in the bookmakers' odds as being a kind of smart way of, of rating teams, but they are very incentivized to be right in the way that they rate football teams, and they're normally pretty good at it. So the implied bookies' odds at the moment for Crew to finish in the top three are around 8%, which, on the face of it, is surprising. They are third in the league table, an 8% probability being implied that they'll stay there. Uh, in top seven terms, it's 33%, one in three. Uh, in top half terms, it's six, between 65 and 70% probability that they'll make the top half. So... You know, I think that's interesting to at least know and can help set your expectations a little bit. Not that it shouldn't be the case that you should aim to, you should definitely aim to overachieve and to to beat those expectations. As for the underlying numbers, which I feel sort of duty bound to bring up, I know they're sometimes quite annoying to hear about when they suggest that your team is is overperforming, but Adam asked a serious question, so I'll I'll give the answer that comes most naturally to me. The, The reason we like underlying numbers, particularly at this stage of the season where we've got a decent amount of football to look at, is that in terms of being predictive 
at this stage of the season, I know that what the numbers suggest will happen would beat what my eyes or my gut instinct think would happen if I if I'd never looked at any underlying numbers. I I I've come to terms with that. I know that's the case. It would be very unusual, I'm afraid, for the team that has faced the most shots on target in League Two to finish in the top three or the top seven. Now, performances can improve, stats like that can improve, and there's been a bit of defensive improvement in the last chunk of games. They've kept two clean sheets in their last four, albeit, from the way I look at it, it it seems to me like those clean sheets came with Jills and Tranmere being pretty wasteful rather than Crew shutting them down completely. So, you know, the underlying attacking numbers are are pretty good. Um, Of course, they're finishing, converting their chances at a higher rate than normal, and that might slow down. Even if it does, there's enough there in terms of chance creation that they should keep scoring at a, a decent lick. Um, despite the good finishing, maybe making things look even better. So there's lots to think about here. It, it could be that Bell continues to achieve defensive improvement and the attack keeps firing, and that's when things really would get exciting. Personally, I'm still in the need to kind of see it, to believe it type thing. So all in all, Adam, I think top seven seems a fair target from this point, and top half should be achieved but mainly I'd say just keep enjoying it. <laughs> just just keep enjoying it. What do you reckon? Agreed wholeheartedly. I find it interesting that they've scored the exact same number of goals at home and away, but conceded like two goals a game, two goals a game away from home. So it depends on how that's going to continue, whether that improves whether the home game, home games get harder. Next two home games, Stockport and Notts County, is that where that kind of slips a bit or are they going to fix the away form, you know? Mm. Well, we'll be watching. Uh, Accrington won. MK Dons nil. Loved this because it was Mike Williamson's first game as an EFL manager. And in the opposite dugout, there's John Coleman, who's managed 479 matches in League Two alone. So over 10 seasons worth of matches, plus 238 in League One. And Lord knows how many more uh, in the non-league days. So that this is... You know, lovely aspects of the uh, of the English pyramid, uh, and and the old timer won with a goal from an old timer, uh, Sean Worley with the winning goal. Uh, any particular interest in old players this week, Hugh? I don't know what you mean. Um, yeah, the the midweek fixture this week. I'm looking at uh, players over the. Well, I don't know if you want to give away the, the title of it yet, but um, we're looking at players over the age of thirty thirty one. Should we should we give them the title? Well. Yes, let's. Let's reward anyone this. that's still listening. 31 over 31, and Sean Wally, Wally uh, will probably feature. It was inspired by, I don't know who, but someone did a 21 under 21 show once on something. I can't, I can't remember who it was now. It seemed to go down pretty well. So we're looking into the 31 over 31. Wally will be in it. Uh, I don't know what his timeout celebration was about after he scored. He seems to be doing a kind of tea timeout moment, unless he saw what was coming from his chairman later. But um, <laughs> it was uh, a really, really good goal because I know you gave him a little tribute the other week, and so you, perhaps he was just rewarding that, if you like. Yes. But, yeah. The whole thing was overshadowed slightly by Andy Holt doing an interesting, having an interesting evening and morning. I guess. Yeah, uh, Andy Holt demonstrating what uh, Drake once described as Twitter fingers. Um, late on Saturday night between about 10pm and around 1am, I think, his last reply was sent. Uh, Andy Holt, the owner of Accrington, who I think had been off Twitter for around a year or maybe more, uh, was very much on it and had quite a lot to say. 
Um, and the headline is uh, a tweet that says, uh, Accrington Stanley is up for sale. I won't let the club fail, but I'm done. Um, it was clear today I lost the fan base and our managers that have cost over three million in my time at the club. Hashtag Holty out. Now, if we'd have ranked the 72 clubs for likely off-field drama this time last week, I think I'd have had Aki pretty low in the 72. Um, but what do I know? Because it turns out that what's been simmering under the surface has, has, has boiled over. Now, the context to Andy Holt's Twitter fingers is that the assistant manager to John Coleman, Jimmy Bell, did an interview with BBC Lancashire Sport midweek. And it was remarkable to be honest. Uh, The assistant manager going on radio and speaking so explicitly about the fact that him and John Coleman haven't been offered a new contract, um, you know, delivered in such a way as to uh, derive a lot of sympathy from the situation and, you know, laying it on pretty thick with uh, what he said about the the fact that they've built the club, you know, from nothing along with the fans and, and some other people. It was, I'll be honest, very unusual that interview it was fairly incendiary i would say because it was unusual and i don't think it was performed by accident shall we say so andy holt is pretty wound up by this and on saturday night he gets his twitter fingers out and he is criticizing he's clearly just so rattled by the fact that jimmy bell has done this publicly and he can't he basically can't abide by it and his his sort of conclusion is that he's had enough of this and he needs to sell the club and he's taken it as far as he can go. Now, on Sunday, Andy Holt went on Radio Lancashire Sport and he actually had some quite interesting things to say, which would have had much more impact, I think, and carried him a bit more favour if the 50 tweets from the night before didn't exist, right? So when I say he had interesting things to say, I mean that he's he spoke about the fact that Aki got relegated last season and it's pretty rare for a manager and an assistant to get a new contract off the back of relegation. You know, you might do so if you really wanted to make a statement of support, but it doesn't happen often. And that's true, undeniably so. There's also, in his words, there was a big concern that they might double drop, a double relegation, which has happened before from League One to League Two. It's a, it's a, it's a tough relegation to swallow, it seems, for clubs. And from in his words, he basically said... we if we are to be relegated again, we won't be able to afford those managers or the playing squad because Accrington's, you know, organic revenue is about as low as any team in the EFL. So I actually thought he had a few legitimate points on Sunday, which he expressed relatively clearly, but he just undermined himself completely by getting angry on Twitter, which is never, never the answer, I'm afraid, particularly not between the hours of 10pm and 1am on, on a Saturday night. It was uh, ah, some drama, to be honest here. Some drama. He did continue into the next morning as well, because I, I agree with you. It seemed to have all the markings of a, a, a late-night uh, Twitter fingers, as you put it. And the next morning, he did come back for more and um, explain a few things. I mean, I'm not going to go into whether um, he's, he's right to be disappointed by Coleman and Bell. I mean, you've got to ask the question of how many disappointing seasons before last year they've delivered in 20-odd seasons there. The thing I was slightly less happy about was when he started saying, oh, they had 45 players and couldn't pick 11, and it's their fault that we've lost a lot of money on the reserves team, and on the under-23s and so on, because 
that kind of went a little bit into on-pitch stuff as well, rather than just, oh, well, they're losing the club money, which is his remit. It, it went into can't even pick a team stuff. So as you say, he was just incredibly rattled or angry about it. And then whether that's helped his cause, I don't know. But as you say, seemed to make a better case for it on Sunday. And I guess we'll see what happens from here. But I agree with you that it's not a drama I saw coming. Wacky, wacky. <laughs> Uh, Sutton 2, Morecambe 3 means three away wins in a row for Morecambe, who very famously barely won any games away from home for the previous uh, 14 months or so. They won't have had many more dramatic than this. They were 2-0 up early uh, and then pegged back to 2-2 by Sutton, uh, scoring a late winner from range, kind of near post daisy cutter from senior that should... Really, it's a shot that should never go in, I don't think, at professional level, but it did. It was It was accurate. Uh, and I think it came through bodies to give the, the keeper a bit of an excuse. And it means that Morecambe have played the current bottom three in consecutive away games. They've won them all, which I think is at the very least a firm message to anyone predicting a, a Morecambe struggle this season, that they're they're better than that. Um, how much better? I'm looking forward to finding out because I had very fond memories of Derek Adams' Morecambe team at this level just a few years ago. Uh, a great day out for the Morecambe fans, uh, in particular our friend Tom Collins from NTT20 squad. It was his it was his birthday, an away day at Sutton. Uh, couldn't have gone much better. Uh, what a top man uh, who had a, a top day. And a, another shout out to a bunch of Morecambe fans whose coach broke down on the way home from Sutton and who got home at 10am on Sunday, <laughs> which is, you know... Had some good memories to fuel them. Uh, Cole, you won Harrogate 2. Hugh, a day that will henceforth be known as Harrogate Gate in Cole, you circles, uh, as it spelled the end of Ben Garner. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm still trying to work out how Harrogate are going to end up winning the league at this rate. How We, we just keep thinking that they're going to drop points and they don't, but they've, they've done it again. And presumably that was the last straw for Cole, uh, for Cole, you's owner. I mean, uh, I was actually quite a fan of the Ben Garner appointment when it happened. I think a lot of people were, you, you, yourselves were. I was expecting better things than they've given this season, but it does seem a little bit of a panicky decision, perhaps. Is that harsh to say? Because they are in the relegation zone, but I wouldn't say the performances have merited that, but it's easy for me to say. I'm not the person who's just um, overseen four straight defeats, or is it even more? But it certainly seemed to surprise me. Did it surprise you? It did not surprise me that Colchester have sacked Ben Garner, and I completely disagree with the decision, if that makes sense. It doesn't surprise me because it feels like Cole, you averaged three managers a season over the last three or four seasons. Um, so there's there's previous for it. Um, they are clearly, and understandably so, pretty worried about the prospect of losing their league status. That's un- that is completely understandable. Uh, I also happen to be at a point where particularly after our long conversation with Omar Chowdhury on the bonus pod a couple of weeks ago, where like I'm really trying to think about managerial performance differently. It's easier for me to remove emotion and therefore criticise uh, owners for acting with, with panic and with what I consider to be kind of premature urgency. That is just how I see this, though. I can't deny it. I think, you know, if you listen to that pod with Omar and we're talking about uh, phrases like an evidence-based decision-making culture where you are measuring performance not just based on results and points where you're measuring performance in a way that is in a way that is fair in a way that you have set out previously with the manager when you hire them I think there are aspects of what Ghana's done at Colchester that have been decent like they, they are 
pretty good going forward. They play good football and they have the youngest team in League Two by a distance. There has to be when you hire a manager who's known for developing young players and thriving in playing with young players and you provide him with the youngest team in the league and understanding that like in the first chunk of the season, perhaps more than any other, there's going to be some kind of uh, funkiness, some some variability in the displays. It's, it's been bad recently. Let's not get away from it. The, the results have been really poor, some particularly like painful defeats like the one against Forest Green and against Harrogate. That can be true. You still don't have to sack the manager. I think there's this, sometimes there's a feeling in English football culture that like there's a certain point where you just, you just sack him. You just have to sack him because this happened and that happened and like, well, can't come back from that. And it's just, it's not the way personally. I think, I don't think they are nailed on to get any better because they've sacked Ben Garner. Of course, we don't know who they'll bring in. It's a club that went with internal appointments for a long time, then external with, with Matt Bloomfield, with Ben Garner. I've no idea which way they'll turn, but I'm pretty down on, on, uh, on the way that Colchester operate as a football club. And, you know, broadly, if, if you continue to operate poorly, as I see it, then you'll get relegated uh, no matter what division you're in. So um, they, they need to find uh, better results. And I think they might well have found that by not changing things and by supporting their manager rather than sacking him. But that is uh, just my opinion. Uh, one team that went through a very poor run, stuck with their man and are now enjoying life is uh, Doncaster Rovers. Hugh Grant McCann has now overseen five wins in seven for Donny. Yeah, he um, he's kind of doing what was uh, a lot of us were expecting earlier on in the season. I thought that um, Tranmere were going to have a bit more of a boost from the Atkins appointment or the the Atkins diet of his positivity, but um, it feels like there's not a lot of positivity to bring at the moment. And he's obviously a great manager in his own right. You don't get from League One to the Premier League with one club by just turning up and being a happy clappy cheerleader. But he doesn't seem to have had any impact at all there at the moment in the interim role. And I wonder if they're going to kind of appoint someone sooner than perhaps I inspect, expected. But um, as you say, Doncaster sticking by McCann's paying off for them as indeed it should have done because it would have been mad to, to get rid. I mean, is Adkins the manager or not? Because it's been six weeks since Ian Dawes was sacked. I mean, the, the amount of apathy that the fan base has is reaching all-time high. And I can't even really... I haven't got a huge amount to say to try and kind of talk them down because it's a club that frustrates me hugely. Um, more positivity for Mo Fall here, the, the Doncaster youngster on loan from West Brom. Uh, Ethan Ingram, another League Two youngster on loan from West Brom, scored for Salford as well. So it was a good weekend for uh, West Brom loanees. Uh, Fall's looking better and better each week and a, a proper handful here and, and scored two uh, from a long punch down field. Uh, Newport three, Freddie Draper three on Friday night. Would you like to have a guess, Ali, at how many hat-tricks there were in League Two last season? Ooh, yes, I would, actually. 46 game weeks, possibly uh, possibly a hat-trick every, what do we reckon, six or seven weeks? 46 divided by 6.5, I think there were seven hat-tricks. There were six hat-tricks. This season, there have been seven already. Goodness me. Isn't that absolutely mad? What's going on? What's going on? Um, and a different one each time. Draper's might be one of the best of the lot, you know, in terms of uh, the breadth of finishes uh, from a number nine. It's unbelievably eye-catching, isn't it? He's 19 years old. 
on loan from Lincoln and he scores a sort of shot from the edge of the box from a cutback, which Maxted should have saved. Second goal, he runs in behind, um, really good movement, good pace, gets the ball, great composure as the keeper comes out to kind of dummy a shot, send the, the defender flying past him and then just roll it with his left foot under the goalkeeper. And then the equaliser in injury time with the keeper up, which is always a nice moment, um, just perfectly diverting what was a very powerful low cross uh, from the left-hand side in with his right foot. Um, it was an absolutely astounding display from Draper and it kind of uh, obscures the fact that Newport scored some brilliant goals of their own uh, in particular Bryn Morris and Will Evans the first player in League 2 to hit 10 goals this season Will Evans who's having an, another unbelievable well he is another player having an unbelievable season so uh, entertaining fair on Friday night Newport 3 uh, Walsall 3 Salford 2 Swindon 2 we saw 3 players score their first EFL goals which is nice here uh, Ingram on loan from West Brom. Liam Humbles, a fantastic name and a great strike to equalise late for Salford. Uh, Romeo Hutton scored for Swindon. That's his first EFL goal uh, after providing 20 assists already in his career. And Charlie Austin scored EFL goal number 134. Uh, Swindon failing to hold on to a lead against 10 men. Quite frustrating. I think there's a there's certainly a feeling amongst the fan base that their points tally could be like significantly better if they could just... Win games. Yeah, play properly for like just maybe five more minutes, please, guys. We could be, we could have six more points. Um, interesting. It's actually, it's actually rocket from Humbles. I think um, the key, yeah. the, one of those where if you freeze frame it, the keeper's not literally not moved as the ball passes him, and I think possibly only starts moving the ball's coming out of the net again. Such a good hit. Yeah, struck with real humility from the youngster. <laughs> uh, Bradford won, Wrexham won. Uh, good performance from Bradford. Good spirit to come back from 1-0 down. Deserved their equaliser and got it through Adam Wilson. Uh, Paul Mullen having scored for Wrexham. Uh, and Barrow nil, Wimbledon nil was a match that happened. So uh, that was a bit of fun. Hugh, thank you for joining me on this journey. Thanks for having me. I hope in the best possible ways to never be back again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm interested to see how long uh, George's illness lasts. Hopefully we'll have him back soon. But a massive, massive thank you genuinely for uh, stepping in and for providing uh, some absolutely wonderful conversation uh, as we've gone through what was quite an entertaining EFL weekend. Of course, we've got full slate in midweek, so um, fire it up again uh, tomorrow evening. Tons of games, a couple on Wednesday night as well. Uh, it's all happening in the EFL. We hope that you're enjoying the ride with us. We're not the Top 20 podcast, sponsored by Betfair, whom we thank very much for their sponsorship into its third season now. Uh, join us again on Thursday for the betting show and go well.